0: Eric Veal with the AppSjack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Today on the show, I'm happy to have Dave Niederchrome. Joe Wallen and Jonathan Olson, and I'll let those guys introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Dave Niedercrome, and I'm
1: a seasoned finance and finance guy and serial entrepreneur. Um, my current project is um, I'm building a, a uh, curated research and collaboration platform for the financial space.
2: Yeah, my is Joe Wallen, and I am a uh, startup and early-stage technology company lawyer in Seattle, and I work with a lot of different uh, companies and investors and companies around town. My name is Jonathan Olson. I'm a registered patent attorney.
3: I work for Aon Law, which is an IP boutique, and I'm happy to have an opportunity to demystify some of that stuff today.
0: Yeah, so it's really good for these guys to be here. Uh, the topic that we're going to talk about today is Acquire, Construct, and Manage Assets, and we'll get into those conversations now. Welcome, and we're going to get into uh, valuation in our larger category of assets here. So we're going to talk about um, basically different ways that assets are valued and how people value assets. We'll start. Uh, the two kind of dimensions we'll cover, at least initially, are uh, larger businesses and how how do large corporations, for example, become valued. And then we can talk about startup valuation, for example, how would small businesses, or projects be valued. So I'll just kind of hand it over to the guests. Anybody can jump in.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll I can, I can jump in to start. I mean, uh, you know, you're looking at valuations from, you know, a publicly traded security. Obviously, it's pretty easy. The valuation is, is put on it by the market, really. Uh, but then when you, you start breaking it down from there, you go going to real estate. And then if you want to go into really looking at companies and and an established company versus a startup, for example, an established company is really it's a it's a multiple of your earnings adjust for some sort of or discount for some sort of risk factor or, or perceived risk factor. And that that'll adjust the value. But it's it's a fairly straightforward uh, calculation, um, something that is going to be perceived riskier is there's going to be you know, a deeper discount rate and the company's going to be worth less because of that risk. As you go down the, the, the company perspective into the startup, it's a lot more difficult to value because there's it's new. Um, there's a lot of aspects to it that are hard to put a true a true value on, whether it's, whether it be source code, whether it be patents, whether it be just the idea, or some trade secrets. What is that worth? And they're hard to value. So, um, whereas again, a more established company with revenues and and you know profitability and assets and and other existing and mature components of the company, is much easier to put a, a realistic value on than, than a, a startup. And the earlier the startup, the more difficult it is to put a value on it.
0: Well, yeah, it, it sounds like the, even the earnings comment, for example, if in the startup scenario, you probably don't have earnings to report per se, you're probably not in that type of, if you're pre-money valuation, whatever it is, if you're not um, making revenue you have your pro forma financials and say, well, I expect to make this much money out of my business over time and I can discount uh, how likely I think those things are. I might have an optimistic, pessimistic type of uh, pro forma. and But I think even just that metaphor of you're dealing with something real intangible in the large business where you say earnings are this specific dollar amount, uh, whereas in the startup scenario you're saying earnings might be the following amount and then you still have the rest risk factor to <laughs> to come in there but it doesn't mean that startups get valued low or because there's there's this opportunity of the unknown yeah it's there there's a lot
1: of unknown and with a startup you're you're not you typically you're not gonna have any revenues or earning or, or i'm sorry or even revenue you're not gonna have any earnings or revenue and probably for a, a fairly significant period of time so you know, looking at the, the projected or pro forma financials, it's all great and all, but they don't mean a whole lot at the end of the day. I mean, it's more of, I think investors look at, of, okay, what is your thought process? Where did you come up with these? What assumptions did you use? How did you, how did you come up with these revenue numbers? How did you look at the addressable market? All those sort of things. But, yeah, it's, it, it's tough in a startup because there's so many components that are missing.
0: What are, it's just a junior question, what are earnings even? I don't even know, I guess, what the math is to earnings, or what is earnings? Profits, Profits. really. Profitability
1: okay. of the company. And yeah. there's
0: different ways to, the, the, that it can be calculated. Typically, mm-hmm. they
1: use uh, EBITDA, which yeah. is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization. That's
0: typically what is used. Yeah. Okay. In, any other thoughts?
3: Uh, following up to my remarks earlier about the move.com versus Zillow, I had a look at what happened uh, to the Zillow stock uh, about the time that they settled for $130 million for uh, stealing these two employees away. Can you guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Huh. The, the stock didn't move a, a, a at all. You, you, know, you know that a lot of those stockholders are out there trading on the news, but they knew. They knew that there was a big liability, and, and they, were, they were neither uh, excited nor dismayed that the amount that they settled for was $130 million. They're just happy that it passed. They were, they were neutral yeah, about just it. Whatever, it didn't go good. up or down. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, We knew. Business as <laughs> yeah, usual. The, th- the theory
1: would be, obviously, the, the, that was already baked into the price of the stock, and so it didn't move. True or not, but that's, that's at least the theory behind it.
3: Earlier on when you know, there might have been a little bit of response right. to the... Pro- probably was. But, I mean, Zillow.com did, did very well with the intellectual property they gained through the contributions of these two participants. But it's just kind of interesting to see the overlay of trade secrets and the litigation in, on the stock price. Th- that would actually mean that the markets are efficient, which we all know is not true. <laughs> it is in theory, but... Maybe more is. efficient than we thought.
1: It probably is. Well, long term it's efficient, but short term it's a little
3: little crazy at times. It can be crazy for sure.
0: Any other thoughts on valuation of kind of how how we do valuation or what are the tools to valuation? I know we talked earlier about tangible, intangible, comparables, stuff like that. Any anything else in this toolkit of value valuation or when we might use this tool?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll well, this is Joe. I'll comment on it from a from an early stage company perspective. And frequently these uh, these valuations are just determined through, um, you know, basic algebra of hey, I want to put, I'll put a million dollars in this company. The investor says, and then the the founders say, okay, well, we'll give you twenty percent of the company for that million dollars. And so, the, I mean, that's and then you do the they do the, the algebra there, and you can figure out well, what what was the pre-money, what was the post-money. But that's, I mean, frequently in the really early stage stages, I mean, you're not. I mean, that's the sort of math you're doing. And the invest on the investor side, the investors uh, have an economic model or theory for their investment, which is that hey, uh, if I can get you know twenty percent or twenty five percent of this company in the first round, um, and get it to get it to the Series A, the valuation will go up. Um, I don't want to take more than twenty or twenty five percent in the first round because we want to keep the founders in the seat and incentive to work hard. Um, and so there's a uh, I mean, it's, there's some rules of thumb and sort of generalizations that go along in the early stage company space, but I mean, it's it's not it's not about um, frequently it's not about some sort of fine tuned financial projections or theories about future performance. It's okay. more about the prospects and the opportunity, the potentiality, the market opportunity. The con- yeah. It's more about the concepts and the team and the and the potentialities of a lot of different potentially widely divergent outcomes. If there are obvious
3: mistakes, though, that the team has made, even if it's an experienced team, I mean, you can you can see devaluation. You you can watch Shark Tank and see what makes them opt out sharply. They're they're very explicit about that, so that's a helpful show to watch now and then. <clears throat> but one of the things that they're it seems like they're always asking. One of the things maybe I value more strongly than other people is: are these investors or is this team? If it's the kind of business that is amenable to some patent protection can they say patent pending because there's a legal penalty for using that word if it isn't true if you haven't filed with the a government that that there is a patent now pending already filed and not yet expired not yet abandoned it has a very specific meaning and if they can't say it well i would i would wonder about that if it was amenable to patent protection why would you not uh at least put up a, a facade because the barriers to entry are so low. You can file a provisional patent application for one hundred and thirty dollars if you're a small entity, sixty-five if you're a micro entity. You don't need a you don't need a patent attorney. You can just follow the directions and patent it yourself if you want. So why would you not at least put up a show? Makes sense. Other people might 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 not view it that way, but they, and I know that they often don't. I know that there's this that there are, is a lot of trading on software companies and that the prevailing wisdom is it's optional for software. Which, you know, if that's what the prevailing wisdom is, then you're going to find investors who will invest without having that requirement. But I would still ask that question. And, you know, I think, I think maybe uh, although uh, actually obtaining the patent for software inventions is uh, sometimes perilous these days, it's kind of unpredict- an unpredictable environment, but given that the barriers to entry are so low, I would think patent pending would be something that, I, if I were to invest in this stuff startup, for most software ideas, I would, want one, I would want something on file. And then when it expires, 11, you know, 12 months later, you could file another provisional patent application on whatever you've come up with in the last 12
2: months. It just seems so I, easy. Yeah, I don't know. In the software context, I really, I really sort of question the utility of a patent um, really what you care about is can the team write code that people want to buy Yeah. and can they get out there and sell and get ahead? I mean, first mover advantage or just, I mean, just mover advantage is a, although it's not a formal, you know, form of, you know, intellectual property, it's a there's a lot of value to it
3: um, it might depend I on the life cycle of the product i mean if you're going to make your money in 6 to 12 months and 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 that's about when <clears throat> the competition will come in and start to over to to swarm over you fine but if you need if you're promising profits 5 to 10 years hence how can you how can you promise yeah, that Yeah this is why pay? i
2: think this is why i think when it comes to like early stage software companies um, brand can be really valuable a brand yeah. uh, I mean a trademark a brand and these things uh, you can actually obtain can, you can obtain a federal trademark registration for a couple thousand bucks and yeah. in 6 to 9 months time and then if you've if you've you've had the tr- the federal trademark registration if a, a another company pops up with a confusingly similar name to yours and it, you can stop them from using that name yes. So that's a really valuable form of ip that i think is it, it's a lot more bang there for your buck i think in the software context than a patent trade secret in,
3: in combination with trademark yes it, it can be very power powerful in that space but as an investor i would still be wanting to, i would still want to prompt whatever whoever whatever startup team i decided to angel invest in i would say well you know just get patent pending man it's easy
0: <laughs> so it's it's kind of like do do the project or take on the you feel like there's there's a a, a level of maturity or um uh a hurdle to jump over in order to have, you kind of see it as a vetting tool that they can either get a patent for what they're doing or they can't. But I still have to imagine that there's types of businesses where they don't necessarily compete on IP, they compete on their people or their level of service or whatever it might yeah. be, that they're not really an IP-rich sure. business, but they might be cash-rich or service-rich, whatever it might be.
3: Sure. A casual gaming, for example, probably doesn't usually depend on too much Patent protection, right? Exactly. How, how fast does it catch on? How many? What's your user base? That's that's essentially trade secret. Mm-hmm. Who are your users?
1: Well, if you look at from from an investor and a startup perspective, because I've talked to you know many over the years, and and you know some of them do care about patents and they they want them just for the reasons you said. Others like I really don't care because really how defendable is it? And they're more on the point that Joe made. It's just it's all about getting to market fast, being the first mm-hmm. mover. Doing something different, doing something better first, and get just getting out there and 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 building this thing and getting ahead of the curve. So it it I think it varies from one investor to the other. Um, there's value in patents, but um, I I think more often than not, I, I they want them, but they want more of they want something out there. And they want it quick. They want you to get users and they want you to get revenue. That's the, those are the two biggest things that you hear in in software. For sure.
0: Yeah. I wanted to circle back to pre and post money valuation. I, I don't know if I fully understand the concept myself, and I was thinking um, it sounds like money, for example, or a large investment, is a milestone in a business which takes it from where it was to some new uh, level. But there's there's other acquisitions or may, maybe many other things happen more gradually. Uh, rather than large infusions of cash, for example, but can somebody walk me through the pre and post money valuation concept? What that is, or to our audience,
2: just to explain it generally. Sure. I mean, in the investment context, uh, pre money is pre money or post money, depending on how you do the math, is just is used to determine what percentage of the company the investors are going to buy. So, if uh, the pre money valuation is four million bucks. And the investors are going to put in a million dollars. Uh, the post money is going to be five million, and one over five is going to give the investor 20% of the company. Although there's games to be played there because frequently investors will also want, when determining the price per share, for you to bake in some amount of uh, option plan, and they'll want the, the pre existing owners of the company to bear the dilution for that. So in my example of a four million dollar pre money company, Uh, If the founders had 4 million shares outstanding, uh, you might think the price per share should be a buck, but the investors will say, no, in addition to the 4 million shares outstanding, we want you to price in an option pool of 15% um, available shares to to, to issue to future workers. And so then your math is going to be the pre-money of 4 million divided by 46 Million or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. uh, depending how we calculate the fifteen percent. So the price per share will go down, and then when the investors invested their money at the price per share, uh, they'll own immediately after the financing a greater amount, the twenty percent, at least calculated on an issue outstanding basis.
3: Right. I have a question about that, Joe. Do you? um, Is there pre money and post money? Are those terms used in regard to the second round also?
2: Uh, Well, every round you've got a um, every round is going to have a. You know some sort of valuation marker to determine the price per share um, so usually subsequent rounds uh, you know come you know on a step up to the a step up to the valuation of the first round so if your first round was a $1 million dollar round on a four million dollar pre-money I mean your second round might start at eight million or nine million or ten million depending on how much progress you've made um, but anyway there are concepts just used to you know we've got to we got to figure out what price, what what percentage of the company is the investor going to own after they put their money in. We need to do that, and, and we use these terms to describe that. Although it's not uncommon in the bigger rounds. Um, so, you know, if you're taking ten million dollars from a, a you know a big institutional source of money, they frequently write their term sheets today to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna write you a t- we're gonna invest ten million dollars," and after calculating. All of your outstanding uh, securities, including all convertible securities, outstanding. After converting everything, after increasing your option plans, you have 10% available. After all that stuff happens, we're going to own you know, 25% of, your, of, of the company. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a slightly different way to approach the math. But mm-hmm. anyway, these are just ways in which we've reached the price per share. Well, and there, there's another,
1: I, I think it's it's starting to be not as common, still as common, but not as common, or more for earlier stage, like startups on the, a seed round where they don't even price the round, they just, they do a convertible note. So they say, okay, we're going to give you $500,000 or a million dollars, but we're not going to put a pre-money value on it until the next round. And then they get some discount to that, so there's no value on it, but then in the falling round, they raise ten or you, you raise money at a ten million dollar valuation. They get their they get their their investment then prices at some discount, and so it's a way to to get money in. Um, again, it's not as common as it was a few years ago, but I think it's still probably still fairly common. But it it just allows you to get in without pricing that round, but you're giving these investors
2: kind of a first. You're giving them a discount of 15 or 20% or whatever it is. Yeah, it's pretty common to, I mean, how do you value an early-stage company? Frequently, it's a mystery, right? You don't know. Um, But even if if you can't price it um, or value the company so you can price it, you can still make an investment. Yeah, you can do these through convertible notes or uh, convertible equity. And then these are just instruments which which, uh, represent the right to some number of shares in the future of some to-be-determined type and then there are boundaries put around that. So the frequently there'll be a valuation cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the investor who invests in the convertible note will know that their investment's not going to convert at a valuation in excess of four million dollars or some number specified in the instrument. Mm-hmm. And then a discount. And then the the investor gets the best of both. Whatever of those is a better price. It's pretty common.
0: Hmm. It sounds like it, it becomes a form of agreement. Ultimately, the valuation is X. And that it's an agreement between people, investors that might be putting it in and and the owners or operators that have the entity. But there's an agreement ultimately on the the valuation of the company is this. It's a a milestone in the company's life for where it's where it's at then or what it's hypothetically worth then. Great. Okay. so that's been a conversation about valuation. Um, We'll be right back. Thanks for listening.
2: You've been listening to the AppsJack podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to abstract.com slash meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the AppsJack podcast. This has been a SeaTown Media production. Find out more at ctownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen com.